Warning, this podcast may contain content and discussions of a graphic and mature nature. Some material may be inappropriate for children, and strong adult language may be present. Listener discretion is advised. Hey guys, thanks for tuning in to another episode of The Devil's Hour, a podcast for the strange and unusual. I'm your host, Darius, and I have here with me my friend, Carl. Hello, I'm Carl. <laughs> he's going to be the uh, he's gonna be the guest host uh, with us for today. Um, so today, we're going to be talking about America's first serial killer, H.H. Holmes. Um, this one was originally intended to be the first episode of the series, but if you've, you know, if you've... Um, if you tuned into the last episode, we actually covered the origin of the Ouija board. So, but this will be the first episode of um, where I cover a serial killer, and I thought it would be appropriate to cover H. H. Holmes because, like I said, he's the first America's first serial killer. So, to start off the podcast, I want to just read a quote. It's like it's honestly H. H. Holmes' most famous quote. Um, and yeah, so I'm going to start off by just by reading it. Uh, it. It goes: "I was born with the devil in me." I could not help the fact that I was a murderer, no more than the poet can help the inspiration to sing. I was born with the evil one standing as my sponsor, beside the bed where I was ushered into the world, and he has been with me since. So, as you can, as you can see, he's a very, um, dark man. Uh, he's, I feel like he was really self-aware, like he knew, he was, he knew he was evil, um, and, uh, he was a very intelligent guy. So... Just a little quick, just some quick facts about him before we go into his origin. Um, Holmes confessed to have killed 27 people, but many experts and investigators believe that the real number is closer to around 100, um, maybe even over 200 people. H.H. Um, Holmes was many different things. He was a con man. He was also a, a successful businessman, um, a serial killer. He was um, <laughs> yeah, yeah, pretty obviously pretty obviously a serial killer. He was a doctor. Um, he had multiple wives and many mistresses, um, and he had dozens of aliases and fake names. So he was definitely um, he had so many different aliases. Like no one really knew his real name. Um, even two of his wives didn't really even know what his real name was. Really? Yeah. So he just like what was his what was his real name? First of all. Um, his real name was Herman Webster Mudgett. My, yeah, I would change my name too if I had that name. <laughs> right. My gosh. Yeah, no, it definitely was not a nice name. So I, I understand why he changed his name. But um, we'll, we'll definitely get into that, like why he changed it. Because there was four reasons that he changed it, obviously. But yeah, so like many of his wives didn't even know his real name. Uh, well, two out of the three didn't. And I think all of his wives didn't even know that... he. Like all of his wives thought that he was he was their one and only type of thing. They didn't know yeah. that he was married. Like you know what I mean? That he was playing them all. Uh, but he was. That makes so, sense. Yeah, he was like, I don't know how he was able to do all that and commit all these crimes and murders, but he was S- able to do it. Sociopath. That's how. Yeah, definitely. And um, okay, so Holmes was he was five foot seven, 
He was about 150 pounds, so, you know, like a... Shrimp. Slight, <laughs> slender build. Uh, Holmes was very intelligent and was charismatic and charming. Um, he was a bit of a ladies' man and was considered handsome, elegant, and sophisticated. Um, so he's pretty much just like me, oh but like serial killer form. <laughs> just kidding. But yeah, um, he was also a best-selling author because while he was... Well, we'll get into that later, but he was a best he was a best-selling author and... Um, the book, he only wrote, wrote one book and the book that he wrote that was the bestseller was his autobiography um, called Holmes in His Own Words. And he wrote that like after he was already arrested for murder and everything like that? that? Yeah, it was, he wrote that while he was in jail. He was actually paid, um, I think in that time, it was $7,000, which in today's Damn. money, that equals about $250,000. Between two hundred fifty to $300,000 in today's money. So he got paid that much money to write a memoir while he was in jail. So that's why. Because I'm pretty it. sure, like nowadays, you can't profit off that kind of thing. Like a killer can't profit off his story anymore. You know what I mean? Oh really? Yeah. yeah I mean, I don't. I really don't know. Actually, I'm pretty sure that's definitely the case. But I think back in the day, back yeah. in the day, that wasn't in there because for sure he used that money. Yeah, it was like a new type of deal. You know what I mean? Yeah. So I mean, and you and you, we'll find out um, later that Holmes was just driven by money and that's like he was just driven by greed so anything to make money is what he um John he would jump at the chance to make money any way he could just like me <laughs> he would jump at the chance to make money it's all about cha paper chaser you know I can respect that part about him you know he was a hustler but yeah I definitely was a hustler definitely um alright so Holmes was famous obviously for being a serial killer but what set him apart from others was that he built um, his quote-unquote murder murder castle. That's what he was known for um, during the World Fair. Uh, and so the Holmes Murder Castle was a hotel he created as a death trap for his guests to enter and never be able to leave. Um, some features of his hotel's design include a maze of sharp angled dead-end hallways intended to disorientate his victims, uh, walls lined with... A, asbestos to muffle screams, a walk-in steel vault where victims are left to starve and suffocate, uh, and gas chambers disguised as guest rooms with vents to pipe in poison gas. Man, you like really, uh, really put a lot of thought into that. Yeah, no, he, he was, uh, he was <laughs> a very intelligent, he was a very intelligent man, probably one of the most intelligent serial killers, definitely. Um, and to dispose of the bodies and any evidence, Holmes had a hidden chute that would transport the bodies to a secret basement where he would melt tissue off the bone in like a pit of uh, quicklime. Um, and he would skin the flesh off of his victim's skeletons on his dissection table. Um, so he would dissect he would dissect some of them using and selling their body parts and organs and would incinerate any remaining body parts um, or flesh in the basement furnace. So he had a big, like a life, like a human-sized furnace in the basement of the hotel. Um, and all of this was a well thought out and meticulously orchestrated process that he developed and would allow, it would allow Holmes to escape detection. Um, and it would also allow him to carry out his sinister deeds until, or under the guise of a, of a hotel, you know, it was all a front, obviously it wasn't a real hotel. Um, yeah. <clears throat> I actually read that the way he was able to build that was like he would pay or he would get contractors to build it for him and like he would like never pay them. You because know, like, like you said, he was like a con artist guy. Yeah. But it just, I always, I always wondered like, did they never stop and think like, huh, I wonder why this guy wants this vat of quicklime in his basement. You know what I mean? Yeah. Like all these weird hallways to nowhere, that kind of stuff. 
So it's weird that they just never, you know, that <laughs> you never got caught just building it in the first place. Yeah, no, that's uh, that's all accurate, um, and we'll touch on that later as well. But yeah, that that all that is all historically accurate. He definitely, um, he had multiple different crews, like construction crews, coming in and out for that for that exact reason. Like he didn't want anyone to know the play the layout of his hotel except for himself. Oh, yeah. Um, so yeah, he was like, it was great. Like his whole story is crazy, but, um, he was most famous for his murder hotel or murder castle. Um, either for you probably hear either phrase thrown around when it comes to HH Holmes. Um, but he also owned properties across the country. Um, and he owned another property in Chicago actually. And it was a, a concrete factory. Um, and the crazy thing about that is that he would purchase cement, but he would never, he would never actually like uh, manufacture and sell the finished concrete like you're supposed to. Uh-huh. So he would just purchase a bunch of it and never actually like pretty much there was like a bunch coming in, but there was no none going out. So it often like detectives were thinking like, why would he purchase so much cement? But the popular theory is that he would use that to hide the dead bodies. Like he would use some, he would hide dead body parts in the cement and then throw it into the river, which was like right, literally right next, like right it was actually on the property. Like the river was right next to his factory, his cement yeah. factory. So he would just, they believe he would just put it, put some body parts in the cement and then throw the cement into the water. And like, obviously it would sink and you're not going to be able to get, to, yeah, you're not gonna be able to get to it. Damn. So he would, uh, so in other words, he, it wasn't just the murder castle. Obviously that was what he was most known for, but he had a lot of different things going on. Um, and a lot of different ways to kill people. All right. Just now that we got that out of the way, just sort of like some quick, facts um we're gonna get into the origin of h.h holmes um and his kind of his upbringing and his early life so h.h holmes was born herman webster mudgett on may 16th 1861 in gilmanton new hampshire herman mudgett grew up in a very small secluded town and he was raised in a strict and religious household uh, his mother theodate stayed at home and his father levi mudgett was a house painter they were devout Methodists and raised homes to be religious. Um, a neighbor later described the family as, quote, being upright, God-fearing citizens living in a quiet, secluded section of the country. Um, so as a boy, Holmes was widely regarded as quiet. He was well-behaved and unremarkable. Like there was nothing really special about him or, you know what I mean? Sounds like, yeah, like a normal family. Yeah. Normal upbringing and everything like that. Right, yeah. Typical for that time, very religious, you know. Um, yeah. But Holmes' criminal habits, they did begin at an early age. <clears throat> so as a boy, he stole small amounts of money from several of his neighbors and refused to come clean when he was caught. Uh, instead, he would always have like a list of excuses to give them as to why his, as to why his theft was actually just like a misunderstanding. So whenever like his neighbors would catch him in the act or whatever, he would just be like, oh, no, like, no, I, I, I didn't know that this was yours or like, oh, no, you have it all wrong. Like, that's not what I was trying to do. Some sort of like he would try to make it seem like it was a misunderstanding and he wasn't actually stealing from them yeah. instead of coming clean and being like, oh, I'm sorry. Like I was stealing. You know what I mean? So, yeah. So it's kind of learning how to manipulate people even at that age. Yeah, already, exactly. You know? Which is definitely if you know anything about H.H. Holmes, he's master manipulator. You know what I mean? Um, so his clean and quiet demeanor convinced many adults that he was telling the truth. Um, cause again, he was a quiet kid. He was very clean cut. Um, and he, like I said, he was also a lot of women considered him handsome. So they automatically kind of gave him the benefit of the doubt. Yeah. I know <laughs> how that goes. I totally relate. <laughs> oh, it's yeah. true though. I mean, people think you're good looking or that you present well, you know what I mean? Yeah. That you just don't, you don't look, look suspicious or like, look like you're up to no good. 
Like you can get away with so much more stuff, you know? Yeah, that is true. Um, there's actually like scientific studies about that. Like you'll get more, you get special treatment, you get treated better mm-hmm. if you're like more attractive or better looking. People uh, just trust you more, give you the benefit of the doubt. Yeah. You know? Yeah, definitely. And I mean, obviously that's not fair, right? But that's just, just how the world works. Is how it is. Yeah. Um, so Holmes had a medical condition known as uh, strabismus. Um, and people with this condition are sometimes called cross-eyed, even though this medical condition isn't physically debilitating, uh, or isn't physically debilitating, strabismus does prevent some individuals from making eye contact. Um, and from the, the research that I was doing on H.H. Holmes, apparently like he wouldn't look people in the eyes and, um, research, researchers believe it was because of his medical condition because like, you know, it was it made it hard for him to look people in the eye. And so some people kind of, you got kind of got like mixed reactions. Some people thought he was untrustworthy because he would never look them in the eye. So they automatically yeah. thought he's got dodgy eyes. You know, he's can't, yeah, he's, exactly. he's lying right now. Or something yeah. Like that. So some people would automatically just assume like, okay, this kid's up to no good, you know? And, um, and, but then some people would just feel sorry for him and be like, no, he, he couldn't steal. Like, you know, look at him. He's, he's like a little innocent kid. You know what I mean? Yeah. So, you know, you got mixed, um, reactions to his medical condition. Um, so Holmes wrote in his autobiography that as a child, he was bullied by a gang of older boys. Um, the boys tormented Holmes with stories of decaying bodies. Um, and Holmes was, so like Holmes was, uh, bullied as a kid. Like that is one thing that he wrote about in his autobiography. And like a lot of researchers always talk about is that he was bullied. Um, part of it is because of his strabismus. So his medical condition, Mm -hmm. but um, also part of it is because he was also really intelligent. He was a really smart kid. So he would do really good in school. And I guess like these older kids, I don't know, kids are like kind of the worst sometimes. So. Yeah. And he was like short and small. So he's probably like an easy target, you know? Yeah. So, so they just like, they bullied him. Um, but he was also like, like I said before, you know, like his, his criminal like beginnings started at a very young age. So he was kind of like a a crime prodigy because he was so, he was very smart. So he always relied on his intelligence. Um, some would even say he was like a genius level criminal. Uh, and obviously signs of this showed at a young age. Um, Herman excelled in school and was often bullied by other kids because of how smart he was. And also because of the fact of his medical condition. Um, and one instance in particular that Holmes that stands out about of Holmes being bullied and he writes about it, um, was when a group of older kids or the kids that bullied him, um, they dragged him into the office of a town doctor and they, they scared him by rigging the skeleton, uh, to have its arms stretched out as if it was trying to grab, grab him. And they just thought they just sort of like drug him into the, the, the doctor's office and they threw him into the skeleton's arms. And I don't know, it, it doesn't say how old he was, but I imagine he was pretty, pretty young. Like mm-hmm. I'm going to say he was 12, just random guess. Maybe I, 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 I feel like he was younger though. Cause exactly 12 years old because this event like traumatized him. And I feel like at 12, you're probably not traumatized by like a fake skeleton. Cause at 12, what you're like in middle school. Yeah. That's like right. I was before. in sixth grade. Yeah. So I don't, I don't feel like you'd really be traumatized by like a fake skeleton, but I mean, maybe I could be wrong about that, but I have a feeling like he was like an elementary. Cause I could definitely see like elementary kids like being scared of it. Like a six year old or something. Yeah. Like he's probably like six or seven, like first grade, second grade, maybe. And like these older kids, they just like, you know, like I said, they were bullying him. They'd been bullying him for since his, you know, for years, I guess. And they just drug him into this, um, neighborhood, uh, doctor's office. And they just like threw him into the arms of the skeleton. 
Um, so he had to confront it face to face and he, it certainly did traumatize him because he wrote about it in his, in his autobiography. Um, and in his autobiography, he states specifically, it was a wicked and dangerous thing to do to a child of tender years and health, but it proved a heroic method of treatment destined ultimately to cure me of my fears and to incul inculcate in me first a strong feeling of curiosity and later a, a strong desire to learn which resulted years afterwards in my adopting medicine as a profession. So pretty much what he's saying in that quote was just how like it, he says that it cured him of his fears that, that him, like he, it was obviously traumatizing to him. Um, and even says like, it was, it was like a, a crazy, it was a wicked thing to do to a, someone of that age. So he definitely acknowledges that it was wicked and yeah. uh, traumatizing, but he also acknowledges that, it's what made him fearless and also it's what got him interested in medicine and like macabre stuff like this know? might sound dumb but it's like in batman begins you know when bruce as an adult <laughs> he goes into the bat cave and because he's scared of bats you yeah. know yeah that's his fear but he goes into the bat cave specifically because you know he knows it's his fear he's going to confront it head on you know yeah it's called immersion therapy actually and you know that huh. scene where he's like standing among the among the bats or whatever. And, yeah, the know. first Batman movie. Yeah. Of the Nolan trilogy. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. No, I, I do. Um, that's a good one, actually. That's a good analogy. I think it's very fitting. But yeah, so so th that definitely left a big impact on his life as a child. So much so he wrote about it in his autobiography, um, and he credits that event as sparking his interest in medicine and like the macabre and death as a whole, I guess. Um, yeah. So Herman Mudgett doesn't blame his parents for like how he turned out and all the crimes he committed. Um, like I know some, maybe some would, I guess like some serial killers. Yeah. A lot of, like a lot of killers or just criminals in general, like it stems from their childhood. They were like abused or whatever they saw. Yeah. Like Richard Ramirez, you know, like he saw his cousin kill his cousin, you know, his wife. So. Exactly. And you know, like, um, Edmund Kemper, he was abused, like locked in a closet. Um, by his mother, like it was just, he was abused and Edmund Kemper did a lot of hor uh, horrendous things. So yeah, like definitely, I'm definitely someone who subscribes to the idea of nurture versus nature, you know what I mean? Yeah. Um, I definitely think m maybe nature plays some part, but I think it's most definitely nurture. Kind of um, the kind of environment you're from or you're raised in. <clears throat> yeah, definitely. Sure. And there's always outliers. So there's definitely instances where it's more nature, mm -hmm. but I think 90% of the time, maybe 95% of the time, it's nurture over nature. Like serial killers become serial killers because they weren't nurtured or because they were abused or mistreated. You know what I mean? Yeah. The crazy thing about H.H. H. Holmes is that he actually had a good childhood. He had a normal childhood. He wasn't abused or anything like that. Mm -hmm. I mean, he yeah. Just, he was bullied. He was bullied, which you could say. But, you know, so many kids are bullied. Yeah, a lot they of people, like, almost everyone's bullied some in some way, you know? Yeah, yeah, and they don't end up killing people, you know? Again, some do, like Columbine, you know? They, oh, they yeah. end up shooting people, but... Um, so I guess you could say that that probably maybe could have caused it, but judging by the type of bullying, like, it sounds like that was the worst of the bullying, just him being dragged and shoved in, into a, like a skeleton. Yeah. That was the worst of the bullying. And if that's the worst of the bullying, obviously that's not okay. You know, that's traumatizing for a kid, but I just don't see how that would translate to him going to kill people. Um, and he, and honestly, I don't think he even, he doesn't even point to that as being him being bullied as the reason why he did what he did. Mm -hmm. um, he literally just says he, that he's evil and that he feels like he was born with the devil inside of him. You know what I mean? Yeah. Um, so I'm just going to take his word for it on that because the evidence points to that as well. 
Um, but yeah, so like he doesn't blame his parents for how he turned out. Um, he even states that he had a normal upbringing and in his autobiography, uh, he states that, and this is a direct quote, um, I was well-trained by loving and religious parents. Any deviations in my afterlife from the straight and narrow way of rectitude are not attributable to the want of a tender mother's prayers or a father's control, emphasized when necessary by the liberal use of the rod wielded by no sparing hand. Um, so I know the language is a little bit kind of old Englishy, but pretty much what he's saying is just that he was t- he was you know raised in a loving and religious household. Um, his father was uh, would st- beat him, I guess sometimes. Yeah, it was strict and would discipline him. Uh-huh. Um, and his mother was very tender and very loving to him, and you know she would pray for him and stuff like that. But it never really indicate he never talks about any sort of abuse from his father. He just said that his father wouldn't spare the rod, and that's like actually a Bible verse, like spare the rod, spoil the child. Um, yeah. So he really what I gather from this quote is just that his father was a disciplinarian and that's and his mother was very loving and he grew up in a very loving and religious household because that's literally what he said. Um, so, yeah, there that's directly from his autobiography. So he's he's pretty much at least he did that much to like kind of like say, you know, my it's parents, not my parents fault. You know, yeah, it had nothing. To, my parents had nothing to do with it. It's just it's me. You know, I was born this way type of thing, which is mm-hmm. which is more intriguing to me. You know what I mean? Um, in 1877, Holmes graduated high school and began dating Clara Lovering. Clara said of him, I always felt he was pleasant in disposition, tender-hearted, much more than other people in general. So that was, and Clara ended up becoming his first wife, um, kind of a spoiler mm. alert on that. <laughs> but, but yeah, so she, she, like her experience with him was that, well, from what it's saying is that, you know, she was, thought he was very tender-hearted and he was a pleasant, normal guy, normal guy, know. pleasant to be around more so than other people, according to her. Um, so a year later, after his graduation, on July 4th, 1878, the two got married, and Holmes worked at a grocery store and did not make enough money to allow him to live alone with Clara. Um, so for over a year, Clara stayed living with her parents, and Holmes had to walk nine miles every Saturday to spend the weekend with his wife. Well, it's dedication right there. Yeah. <laughs> I, wouldn't right. Even, I barely even text people back. <laughs> he's walking nine miles. Yeah, that's each uh, way. That's true crazy. love. Yeah, each way. So a year and a half later in 1880, Clara gave birth to their first uh, child, Robert. Clara stayed at home and cared for their child while Holmes pursued his newfound passion, which was medicine. Um, in 18, uh, later on in that year in 1880, 19-year-old Holmes enrolled at the University of Vermont Medical School and lived at a boarding house near campus while his wife and child stayed living with his in-laws. Uh, during this time, Holmes would flirt with multiple women and would attempt to hide the fact that he was a married man. Holmes got into a physical fight with his roommate at his boarding house and left him with a black eye. He also gained a deep fascination with chemicals and chemistry, um, so much so that he actually set up a chemical lab in his room and hired a private tutor to teach him chemistry because he was not satisfied with the university's teachings. Um, <clears throat> so he... So you can already kind of see that he has a kind of an anger problem sometimes because mm-hmm. he fought his roommate, left him with a black eye. But you can also see him developing stronger interest in the, the sciences, you know what I mean, like chemistry. Yeah, like he didn't even think that school was teaching him well enough, so he's like, I'm going to hire someone else to do this for me. Yeah, exactly. Know? Yeah, I mean, and, you know, a kind of a little, a little more detail on that is like the school, the medical school of Vermont was really small. So yeah, I can imagine. Yeah, it was really small. Then. So it kind of makes sense why he, he wasn't happy there because he felt like he wasn't getting taught 
as well as he could have been. Um, so he felt like it was holding him back being there. Um, so Holmes loved like dissection. Uh, he apparently he was like very fascinated with dissection and dissecting bodies. And apparently he had taken taken some of his material home to privately experiment on them. Because Holmes' fellow med, sc- uh, med school students later remarked that he always seemed to have a morbid fascination with dead bodies. He was always very eager to work on cadavers during class. Holmes ra- ran out of money in Vermont and dropped out of college after one semester. Um, this, this forced him to go back home and take a job as a teacher. He mostly taught preteens, but he was rough on them and took pleasure in subjecting them to like corporal punishment. Mm. Uh, and at the end of the year, students submitted universally negative reviews about Holmes. Um, they had like rape my professor back then or whatever. <laughs> <laughs> rape my professor. The, the 1882 version. <laughs> right? <laughs> Wouldn't that be crazy? Like H.H. H. Holmes was your professor before he, yeah. he began killing people. That would be, that'd be something to talk about. <laughs> rape, rape my professor. But at the end of the year, yeah, so at the end of the year, you know, students submitted like really, really bad reviews about him. So much so that the university just fired him. Um, and after losing his jobs, uh, his job, Holmes moved with Clara and his baby to Ann Arbor, Michigan in 1882. Okay, actually, before I go on to this part, I do want to mention that I did miss, uh, I did skip over a fact. So while he was living in his, in his boarding room, boarding house in Vermont while attending, you know, the University of Vermont, um, obviously he got into a fight with his roommate. Um, he hired a chemistry tutor and he was learning, you know, he built a chemistry lab. Well, another crazy like incident that happened while he was living there was that his landlord was sweeping uh, in his room one day when he was gone, and she found the cadaver of a baby stuffed under his bed. Jeez. Um, and yeah, so she freaked out. But I mean, he didn't get in trouble because you know he was in medical school, so it was one of the cadavers he just took from his class. But still, like just the fact that he had it just hidden under his bed so nonchalantly, probably yeah. slept over that dead body, like who knows, days, weeks, who knows? Yeah. It's just crazy. weird. Yeah. It's someone else found it. Like how do you even confront someone about that? You know what I mean? <laughs> exactly. Like, why is there this body of a child under your bed? <laughs> yeah. Like I don't even. I thought it was a doll. I'm sorry. I didn't know. It's just like foreshadowing like how, how kind of like depraved he was or just kind of how um, numb he was to the whole. Yeah. Like nothing like, nothing like that bothered him. Like, <laughs> yeah. Nothing yeah. violent or. Death didn't bother him at all, it seems like. Yeah, he definitely was not phased. He was so used to it at this point. Um, so, yeah, so after losing his job, Holmes did move back with, moved with Clara and his baby to Ann Arbor, Michigan in 1882. Um, here, Clara worked as a dressmaker. And on September 21st, 1882, 21-year-old Herman Mudgett enrolled in the University of Michigan Medical School. For the first time, their little family was all living under the same roof. Because, remember, before this, they were... He couldn't afford to yeah, live. He was in the dorms or whatever. Yeah, exactly. Um, so they're all living under the same roof for the first time. However, Holmes reportedly resented Clara and their child because he felt like they were both holding him back from achieving great things, even though Clara was the one helping to finance Holmes' medical schooling because that, that was not cheap. Uh, medical school yeah. was expensive, and Holmes didn't come from a rich family. He didn't have a lot of money. Clara... It did come from a more well-off family. So she was financing him to go to medical school to pursue his passion. And yet he has, like, the audacity to, like, to think that, like, oh, they're just holding me back, blah, blah, blah. You yeah. Know, it's, just, it's just, like, into his psyche, like, how he thinks. He's, like, delusion, Like, you know what I mean? Uh-huh. Delusions of grandeur, I don't know. Um, but neighbors reported that the couple fought often and 
they reported seeing Clara with um, walking around with like black eyes on multiple occasions. Um, eventually, and th so this would, you know, this would suggest that Holmes was abusive to her and would physically abuse her. Um, eventually, Holmes's abuse was too much for her, and she left Holmes and took the baby in 1884 back to New Hampshire with their parents. Um, Holmes was not affected by her leaving him and actually seemed unbothered and almost happier that they wow. were gone. Yeah. He's like, wow, well, now they won't hold me back anymore. I can just do whatever I want. Exactly. It was almost just like, yeah, they're just slowing me down. Now I can really move full steam ahead. Um, so Herman's two natural talents were chemistry and anatomy. And it is, it's here at the University of Michigan Medical School where his natural talents really were really shined and were really perfected. Uh, according to serial killer and criminal profiler Thomas Cronin, most serial killers don't finish college. Um, they're smart enough to, but they're, they're smart enough to, and they certainly could, but they lack the discipline and the patience needed to finish. Yeah. Um, according to this uh, yeah, serial killer profiler, he goes on to say that Holmes is unique because he finished college. And not only did he finish college, but he finished medical school, which is a long and rigorous program. So mm -hmm. this just shows you the kind of guy he is, you know, not only is he insanely intelligent and smart, but he's also very patient. Yeah. Um, you kind of wouldn't gather that from like him abusing his wife or him, him abusing his wife or him fighting with his roommate. You would kind of think like he's a hothead, but he, he, I think he had moments where he could be, you know, where he kind of would get, get uh, in a fit of rage and like react. Mm -hmm. But I think when it came to things that he was passionate about or things that interested him, he was very patient and very meticulous. Like he was really dedicated. Yeah. Because it takes dedication to finish like medical school yeah. on top of your college. Exactly. So he obviously cared a lot about medicine, killing people, you know, things he was dedicated to, <laughs> like he would go all out towards. Yeah. He, did he was able to focus on that, those kind of things, you know. Yeah, I definitely agree. Um, so, yeah. So he finished that. Um, that that is, sets him apart from other serial killers in that he was actually a legitimate doctor. Um, Herman's lust for blood is developed in medical school and he becomes immune and desensitized to death and dismemberment. So it's at this school because at the school of Vermont, um, according to the research I was doing, most of it, most of what he was doing there was just listening to lectures because it was yeah. a small school. So they didn't really have that much money also. So he would just mostly listen to lectures and stuff like that. But here at the University of Michigan Medical School, it was a much bigger school. They had a lot more funding. Um, and so they would actually do, um, dissections on cadavers. They'd work on cadavers like almost daily is what the research was suggesting. And actually there was, there's actually a big kind of, I guess, what's the right word for it? Like, um, scandal, like a big, like scandal at the time with this specific school that they would, they would like buy cadavers and like skeletons from grave robbers and like thieves oh yeah um i bet yeah I mean, because it was it was cheaper for them and they were able to supply their students with like the necessary instruments to work on you know mm -hmm. um and they'd never asked questions of where they got it from even if they <laughs> knew that it was from a grave robber like you know so they this school had a bad reputation for doing that actually and it's here that herman begins to herman mudge begins to develop and see these things and learn from it so yeah, so here at this, being at this school and operating on cadavers, as well as dissecting them, you know, made him desensitized to death and dismemberment. Um, this is also where he meets his friend and fellow medical school classmate, Robert, Robert Laycock. Um, huh. 
Holmes was not wealthy like many of his medical schoolmates, and he complained that they had it easy. Um, medical school was expensive, and since Holmes did not have as much money, um, oh, since, yeah, medical school was expensive, and since he and Laycock didn't have that much money, uh, they began digging up and robbing graves to use the corpse and sell the skeletons to universities and medical offices for money. So, like I said, this school already had a bad reputation for it. You get Holmes in the mix, who's already has a criminal past, you know what I mean? Yeah. Um, and he's like, okay, I need money. I don't make that much. All these like rich kids have it easy. I gotta, I gotta get my, I gotta get my hands dirty to, to make this work. You know what I mean? So he mm-hmm. was very driven, very goal, very, very, very goal oriented. You know what I mean? Even if his goals are sadistic and twisted, still a goal, still you know? a goal, and he definitely accomplished a lot of them. So yeah, so he's like, okay, I need money. Here's a quick way to do it. Let's do it. So him and his friend Laycock began digging up and robbing graves. Um, and they sell the corpses and skeletons to medical offices and universities. This later led to Holmes' scheme of committing insurance fraud by insurance, insuring people and then sub- substituting an unidentified, an unidentifiable cadaver in place of their corpse. Um, so Herman Webster Mudgett finally graduated from medical school in 1884. Um, <clears throat> so in the next two years after his graduation, Mudgett perfects his skills as a con man across several different states and while holding several different occupations, such as a drugstore clerk, an insane asylum attendant, a teacher, and a doctor. Um, Holmes said this of his time working at an insane asylum. Quote, This was my first experience with insane persons, and so terrible was it that for years afterwards, even now sometimes, I see their faces in my sleep. It's pretty ironic. Yeah. He was pretty insane himself, you know? So Yeah. Actually, uh, a fun fact about that is... Um, I wasn't able to find like the year that he did it, but several different documentaries talked about it, how H.H. H. Holmes committed himself to um, a psychiatric ward, like an insane asylum, um, because he wanted he wanted to have like a way of escape if he ever got caught. He could plead oh, the insanity thing. It is smart. Yeah. So he, well, I've already been before, you know, I've been committed before. I'm clearly insane. Yes, exactly. So, he, again, like, he was super smart. Like, he thought years and years ahead. He was like, well, if I ever get caught, this is going to be, like, my get-out-of-jail card. You know, I'm going to have mm-hmm. this in my back pocket just in case. So he, what he, how he, how he was able to get into a psychiatric ward was he went to a police officer and he told him that he wanted to kill himself, like, commit suicide. So the police officer kind of was like, what the heck? So they, that's how he got into an insane asylum. But he only spent like a very small amount of time there because they soon realized like this guy's actually super intelligent. He's not crazy at all. Yeah. Um, so he got out. But yeah. So the whole reason he kind of went there was just to make it seem like he was crazy so that if, if he ever got caught, he could just plead insanity. Actually, um, is pretty, pretty smart. Yeah, it is very smart. Okay. So that was the origin or, you know, the early years um, of Herman Webster Mudgett, a.k.a. H.H. Holmes. So now we're going to dive into his crimes and murders. So by the fall of 1885, 24-year-old Holmes had accumulated a massive massive amount of debt that he could not pay off. In order to escape from the massive amount of debt he got himself into and to prevent any former acquaintances from coming forward with accusations of fraud, poisonings, or death, he decided to adopt an alias and change his name. Um, the world would never again hear from Herman Webster Mudgett. He would now be known as H.H. H. Holmes. It is a way cooler name. <laughs> yeah, it definitely He, he picked is. a good one. That. <laughs> Triple H, that's what I'll Triple H. That's where the wrestler Triple H, ladies and gentlemen, <laughs> that's where he got his name from. 
Makes perfect the sense. The serial killer, H.H. Holmes. <laughs> but yeah, no, it's definitely a better name than Herman Webster Mudgett. Yeah. Um, so yeah, so he changed his name. And uh, he got married again for the second time. Uh, his second wife, her name was Myrta Belknap. Um, and she was a clerk at a music store before marrying Holmes. But other than that, little is known about her or how or even when she met Holmes. So we don't know for sure when they exactly met or how they met, but we do know that she was a music store clerk before they got married. Um, evidence suggests they got married soon after moving to Chicago. But because Holmes was still married to his first wife, Clara, um, their marriage was unofficial. Murda most likely never knew that Holmes was married before. Um, and she most likely didn't even know his real name. So again, remember what I said earlier, like um, two out of three of Holmes' wives, they didn't even know his real name. They just thought it was his name was H.H. H. Holmes. Wow. Um, yeah, so he definitely is a man of many lies, a man of manipulation, um, a lot of cons. Ultimate con man. To tie it kind of back into B- Batman again. <laughs> oh, God. <laughs> Go ahead. Dark Knight Rises, you know, <laughs> him and Catwoman, they didn't even know the other, other person's identity, you know? Yeah. And they still fell in love. And That's true. Eventually they found out, you know, but at the beginning, it's like, go show, they don't have to know your name to love you, you know what I mean? Yeah, so, but I don't think that's the argument. I mean, I think... Um, no, it definitely is, for sure. <laughs> that's Hollywood, and this is, like, real <laughs> life. Because, um, yeah, well, back then, you didn't have Google or anything like that, you know, like, yeah. pretty much all I had was someone's word, and you couldn't, like, research about people, so she couldn't have figured out anything about him prior to, to you know, her marrying him, really, so... That's true. It's probably easier to pull off back then, for sure. Yeah, and, um, you know, again, like, he was just a very... Like, everyone says it. Um, like, all of the historians, everyone who researches him, they all say that he was very charismatic. He was very good with words. Um, he was very sophisticated, dressed nice, was clean-shaven. You know, well, not clean-shaven, but he had a mustache. But, you know, well-kept, I should say, you know? Mm-hmm. Um, like, he used mustache wax. And that's an actual fact because he got in a fight about it. <laughs> <laughs> like, yeah. So, he, he was very well-kept. You know, he had style and class. And that attracted a lot of women to him. And we'll see later on, like when we started getting into his mistresses and you know, all of that. Um, but yeah, he was definitely like a ladies man for sure. Like, but I think for him, it wasn't even so much that like, Oh, like I'm trying to get all these girls for him. Like his one like thing was just that he wanted to, he wanted as much, he wanted to accumulate as much money as possible. Yeah. And he wanted to, he liked getting the best of people. He liked outsmarting them mm-hmm. and rubbing it in their faces. And you know, as we, dive deep into it we'll we'll learn more and more why he was like that or you know the evidence that supports that um but yeah and so in may of 1886 holmes moved to chicago officially and in 1886 chicago was a booming city ripe with financial and business opportunities um perfect for real estate development and job seekers around the world upon his arrival to chicago holmes immediately got uh gets a job at the es holton drugstore um Several months later, Dr. Holton, who's the owner of the drugstore, died of supposedly natural causes. And then his wife, Claire Holton, uh, disappeared after selling the drugstore to Holmes. Oh, wow. That's, so, a, that's just a coincidence, both those things, you know? <laughs> yeah. No way. Exactly. Like, it's kind of crazy. Like, wherever H.H. Holmes goes, there's, like, a lot of mysterious disappearances and deaths. And it's like, 
okay, there's just something fishy going on here. You know what I mean? Like, yeah. Wherever this guy goes, death follows. It's true. Um, I think one of his nicknames is actually Dr. Death, I think, maybe. I feel like that. No, that's Jack Kevorkian. Is it? Yeah. Hmm. The 80s. Well, maybe he could have been the original Dr. Death. Who knows? Because, you know, Richard Ramirez wasn't the original Night Stalker. That was... Um, the Golden State Killer, but um, you know, I like sometimes nicknames are attributed to multiple serial killers. Yeah, but well, he was a doctor and he did, he did, you know, pass out death to everybody. But yeah, so pretty much 1886, Holmes moves to Chicago. As soon as he moves, he gets a job at E.S. Holton Drugstore, which is not hard to do because he's a doctor. And when you have oh yeah, I went to medical school. And yeah, everything. so he was he had credentials. He was sophisticated because he had that. He was able to get a, a job very easily. Um, but he was also able to convince, you know, the, the owners of the store to sell, I guess the drugstore wasn't doing that well from what I was reading. Um, they were kind of not making a whole lot of money and they were already older. Yeah. So they sold the drug. He convinced actually from the reports, he convinced the Holtons to sell them, uh, to sell him their drugstore. Mm -hmm. Um, so once they sold the drugstore to him, that's when Dr. Holton died of, like I said, supposedly natural causes. And then his wife, Claire, she just disappeared and no one really knows what happened to her. But he got the store out of them. Yeah, yeah. he got the drugstore. So at this point, he's a business owner. He owns a drugstore. He kind of revamps it and he's doing well for himself, you know, as a business owner and a doctor. Um, in 1888, Holmes secures the vacant lot across the street from the drugstore. It is here that Holmes constructs his murder hotel. Um, Chicago residents were so impressed with Holmes, uh, with Holmes buildings appearance that they nicknamed it the castle. Um, cause it, it looked pretty nice. You know what I mean? It was three, oh, yeah, I've seen three pictures. stories. Yeah. Like, yeah. I'd stay there. Yeah. Right. That's pretty nice. And, uh, but everyone was completely unaware of the, of the horrors, you know, that awaited inside. Um, no one, no one knew at all or suspected. Holmes was the architect of architect of the building and he was the only one that knew the design of the hotel. He would frequently hire and then fire different construction workers who were building his murder castle. And he had several reasons for doing this. Um, so I know we touched on it earlier. But the first reason is Holmes was a con man who was in piles of debt. Um, and he would, always, he would always take out bank loans and never pay the banks back. <laughs> Nowadays, it's like you cannot do that. You, yeah. would, you will get arrested. But like back then, it was so easy to get away with a lot of crimes, especially things like that. Like... It could be as simple like him getting out of debt was as simple as him changing his name and moving. Yeah, like that's how easy it was. The banks had no like computerized system. Mm -hmm. You know, there's no internet or anything like that. So. Yep. Yeah. Most definitely. So, yeah. So he would you know often take out bank loans and never pay them back. So one of the reasons he didn't want he would constantly hire and fire them is he didn't want to pay them back. Um, he, let's see here. So he would hire and fire construction workers at a rapid and unusual rate to get out of having to pay for their services. He would often say that they were doing poor work and that they did not, and that he did not like the job they were doing. Um, so he got away, oftentimes he would get away with never paying a lot of the, the workers. Um, obviously this is a lie, but yeah. you know, he would do it. Um, and then the second and more evil reason behind it um, was so that no one besides him had a clear picture of what the structure and layout of the building was. That does make sense. Yeah. It's not like one construction crew built the whole building and knew everything about it. It's like everybody's working on different parts and they don't know how things you know, are related to each other really. And so that does make sense now. Yeah. That, that's like the most, yeah, definitely the most sinister reason because he's the only one with the knowledge of how everything works. And I mean, now, now because of the internet and everything and obviously years later, 
decades later, like there's, they have like maps of the hotel, like layouts, blueprints of it, surveys like, on and the stuff internet. Like that. Yeah. And it's like crazy. Like the amount of like, there's like hidden doors, there's trap doors, there's hidden shoots, um, that like lead to like the basement. There's just like so much, like there's a, like a crazy things, staircases that led nowhere, like staircases that would just go up and didn't lead anywhere when you'd, there'd be like, like I said, um, there'd be doorways where you'd open a door and there'd just be bricks. Like it would just be a brick wall. Uh, um, so like a lot of crazy things. Um, yeah, I don't know. Just there's tons and tons of weird stuff going on at that hotel. It was definitely something out of a horror book for sure. Um, Holmes had purchased this huge steel vault on credit and he put it in his building while it was still under construction. And he had the building in the room built around the vault. Then Holmes refused to pay for the vault, and would, and when the company came to repossess and collect it, Holmes said, "You can take it, but if you damage my building in any way, I'm going to sue you for everything you've got." No. So he was so smart, and like, like again, just an ultimate con man. Like he bought this big, expensive vault, a life-size steel vault, put it in his building while it was under construction, had the the room built around it so mm -hmm. that it was like airtight and like nearly impossible to get it to get it out unless you broke the wall, you know? Yeah. So that when the company came to collect, collect from him and, you know, repossess it, essentially, he was like, okay, you can go ahead and try to remove it. But if you damage my building, I'm suing you. So the company, the vault company gave up and allowed Holmes to keep it because they found it was too difficult to remove. So his plan worked again. Shocker, right? <laughs> He's smart. Um, Holmes reportedly, reportedly asked one of his employees to get inside the vault and scream. He wanted to see if the vault was soundproof. And um, the employee said he never explained to them why he had them do this. <laughs> but <laughs> judging by... So I'm going to record a metal, uh, metal album in there so I can make sure <laughs> right? the studio works. Uh, yeah. <laughs> judging by what like he did with the vault later, we already know the answer to that question, why he had them do that, you know? Yeah. Um, yeah, so the murder hotel that he built had three floors. The third floor contained guest rooms offices and Holmes' own personal room. The second floor had 35 rooms, many specifically designed as killing chambers. Um, 35 rooms on one floor. Yeah. It's nuts. Yeah, it is insane. So the killing the killing chambers, like a lot of them were like gas chambers kind of thing. Like they were, just, they were rooms or they were gas chambers disguised as rooms. Mm -hmm. It was like easy for him to kill people that way. He would just asphyxiate them while they were sleeping or just you know, whatever in there. Um, yeah. So a lot of stairways led to nowhere. When you'd open doors, there'd be brick walls. The basement resembled a medieval torture dungeon, um, filled with the basement had like vats of acid. Um, there were quicklime pits, a crematorium disguised as a furnace, uh, dissection tables. These were all Holmes like favorite methods of body disposal. Um, after cleaning and mounting their bones, Holmes would make money off of his victims by selling their skeletons to local medical schools and universities. Back to Michigan. <laughs> back, yeah, back to his um, days. Alma mater. <laughs> Summa cum laude. Yeah. Yeah, back to his days in medical school. You know, like he learned a lot, I guess, from there. Not only no, not only how to dissect, but he learned that damn, there's there's money to be made in the business of selling skeletons and organs so he would from a from one dead body he could make a lot of money because he could sell their organs and then he could have the body um skin the body and have the skeleton articulated that's that's what the phrase the word is i don't really know what that means i guess that means like cleaning it you know having it all yeah. like put together 
So he'd have the, he'd skin the body, sell, sell the organs and body parts, skin the body, um, and have the, the skeleton articulated and then sell that to a medical school or a doctor's office. And so like with one body, you can make a lot of money. So, you know, and who knows how many bodies, again, like there's not really a confirmed amount, but a lot of people believe it's around or over 200, you know, victims. Um, yeah. So Holmes made a killing in Chicago. Wow. Both financially and literally. Did you think of that yourself? <laughs> I did. That's, just, that's, I put, so, that's so good. <laughs> wow. I put that in bold too. I was like, Holmes made a killing <laughs> in Chicago. Both just, financially. Uh, a wordsmith over here. That's crazy. <laughs> wordsmith. Yeah. Thanks, man. <laughs> I appreciate that. Appreciate the hype. Um, in 1889, Holmes' second wife gave birth to their daughter, Lucy. Uh, and not long after the birth of his daughter, Holmes began cheating on Myrta, which is his second wife, with one of his employees, Julia Connor. Uh, Julia Connor was the wife of a jeweler that Holmes had hired for his drugstore. So he had, you know, uh, he owned the drugstore, but he also had the murder hotel. Yeah. So he hired a jeweler, which is kind of weird to me. I didn't know, like, why is a jeweler at a drugstore? Like, I guess back then, there's all kinds of stuff, you know. You could use the pharmacy for all kinds of things, you know. You could sell groceries there. It could be like a pawn shop type situation too, you know, all yeah. in your, your st one store. Yeah, that's a good point. I guess it was common back then mm -hmm. or whatever. So, yeah, he was a um, – her husband – okay, so, yeah. So she was the wife of a jeweler that Holmes had hired for the drugstore. While her husband, Ned Connor, oversaw the jewelry department, his wife worked as the cashier. So, yeah, okay. So they lived on the second floor of the hotel along with their young daughter, Pearl. And Holmes could hear the young couple arguing a lot through the walls of the hotel. And he saw an opportunity and he took it. Nice. There's just, just like soccer, you know? There's goalies in soccer. It doesn't mean you can't score. Oh my God. So, you know, he embodied that right there. What are you teaching these kids? <laughs> just, just saying. These kids that are listening to this podcast trying to hear about H.H. Holmes' horrific murders. What are you teaching I them? I know. I could be poorly influencing them. <laughs> I want to do that. Hopefully there's no kids listening to this. Or if they are, like, they're old enough. So they wouldn't be kids anymore. Right. I mean, I don't so know. you just contradicted yourself. Are teenagers kids? God, I, don't know. I don't know. I feel like a kid sometimes. I'm in my 20s. Yeah, you know? same. It's like Billy. <laughs> they call him Billy the Kid, but he was like 20 or 19. Something like yeah. that. Yeah. But yeah. Okay. So back to the matter at hand here. So yeah. So he saw an opportunity. He saw that they would argue a lot. He could hear them arguing. So he, he decided to strike. Um, he became very attentive to Julia and they carried on an affair for over a year. Um, so they actually began sleeping together and stuff like that behind Ned's back. Nice. Um, oh my God. <laughs> I'm just kidding. In 1890, Ned and Julia separated officially. Ned quit his job and started living in a different part of the city, which makes sense. You probably wouldn't want to work with your ex. Oh, I know. Been there, done that. Not very cool. <laughs> <laughs> almost immediately after Ned moved on. Um, yeah, almost immediately after their divorce, Ned moved on. Holmes found Ned and started bragging that he was sleeping with Julia. Damn. Yeah. <laughs> Apparently crazy. telling him things that only someone who was intimate with her would know. So, wow. yeah, he was rubbing it in his face and just like, yeah, Holmes found, yeah, so apparently tormenting and humiliating, humiliating Ned gave Holmes like a rush and satisfied him in very, in like a lot of different yeah, ways. Ned sounds like a beta though, just stand there and take that, you know? <laughs> I don't know what he did. The I mean, guy that cucked him. Is he a beta or is he the bigger man? Because well, they're divorced. He, he, but I guess I don't. I, I'd say I'd say beta, you know, because I think Holmes got the better of him right there. 
I mean, I, the thing is, I don't know if he went and told Ned, like, hey, I've been having an affair with your ex-wife for, like, a whole year while you were still married. I don't know if he said that or if he just went and said, I'm currently sleeping with your ex-wife. Because it's like, I feel like it's two different things. I feel like if he said, I'm currently sleeping with your, ne- your ex-wife, he would be, yeah, I'm sure he would be hurt and, like, pissed. But at the end of the day, maybe he's, like... A very calm and collected guy, and you're just like, you know what? She's not my business anymore. Like whatever. Yeah, like he moved on. Yeah, exactly. Because mm-hmm. it said he didn't move on, so maybe he was seeing someone. But if if H.H. Holmes had went and told him like, I was sleeping with your wife for over a year while you were still here and while you were oh, married, yeah. then then like I could see him like, yeah, maybe trying to fight. I don't know. Who knows? Maybe he that didn't. is kind of petty of H.H. too, like to go to Ned and be like, oh, I'm sleeping with Julia. Yeah. And maybe Ned was like, I don't care. Like she's my ex-wife. Like. So what? Yeah, you know? exactly. So. It, I was a little too harsh on Ned earlier. I'd like to apologize for that. <laughs> he was a great yeah, guy. Yeah, he was a good guy. You know? <laughs> he's, he's going through a lot, and you're just like yeah. making it hard on him. But uh, yeah, so, so just this is just kind of another example of how like messed up H.H. Holmes was. Like he didn't care. He really didn't have that thing called a conscience. Mm-hmm. Con- conscious. Yeah, conscience. Conscience, yeah. Um, he had no empathy for people. He, he did not. He didn't have empathy. He didn't have a conscience. He, he was just numb, like... A word that comes to mind is just numb. He just does things and he doesn't care what the repercussions are. Um, so Holmes was humiliated as a young boy by his, you know, by being pranked and all by like getting bullied and bullied stuff like a that. lot. And so maybe he wanted to inflict this same pain and feeling on other people. Um, some of Holmes' favorite scams involve the ones where he could watch the look on his victims' faces. He wanted them to know that they had been beaten and outsmarted. So mm-hmm. maybe there is something psych- – I'm not a therapist or you know a psychologist, but maybe there is some psychology there. You know what I mean? Like he was humiliated as a kid and he felt helpless. You know, So maybe he wanted to inflict that same kind of pain on someone else and watch them be humiliated. Yeah. You know? Who knows? It seems like a common theme with some serial killers. Like the – you know, the Night Stalker, he like – for the victims to know what was happening to them. Like he wanted them to be scared and be aware of what was going on. And he didn't want to just kill people in their sleep or whatever, you know? Yeah, no, that's true. And wasn't the night stalker actually like molested when he was a kid? Uh, I probably am. So I'm sure he, I think I know the big thing with his child is he saw his cousin murder somebody yeah. when he was a kid. And so, I mean, that would definitely scar you a lot, but yeah, but he was molested though. It, yeah, it could be, but yeah, I mean, like I said, like you said, it, there's like a pattern to it, like you know, like that phrase "hurt people, hurt people." Exactly. Yeah. It's like, yeah, that's like right out of the serial killer book because if they were abused, it's like the nature versus nurture thing. If they grew up abused or mistreated, or like for the most part, like they're gonna try and inflict that, inflict that pain on other people. It's like they're getting their revenge in that kind of way or whatever. Yeah. So it's probably like how Holmes felt when he would do that to people. Yeah, definitely. Um, Holmes also used Julia for her money. Um, at one point he took $2,000 from her under the guise that she was buying shares of his fake company. Mm. So $2,000 back in the day, that was quite a bit of money. Um, just like his relationship with his wife, Holmes saw his relationship with Julia as just another way to take advantage of her. Holmes continued his affair with Julia and was able to keep it from his wife. And at this point he had, well, I mean, yeah, he had two wives technically, but Clara was already still living in New Hampshire with her kid. Yeah, his it, first wife. He, it was, yeah, it's of the opinion of many that he just kind of abandoned his first wife. His first wife and child, he just sort of abandoned them and never, I don't believe he ever went back to see them or anything like that. Um, but he did stay married to Myrta. Uh, so yeah, so while well, he's carrying on this affair behind his wife's back. 
When Julia got pregnant months later, she pressured Holmes to marry her. Um, Holmes agreed, but under one stipulation. She would allow him to perform an abortion on her. Uh, reluctantly, she agreed. The abortion was set to be performed on Christmas Eve. So that's kind of messed up. Like, yeah. Like it's, like the, it's like the anti-Jesus thing or whatever. Yeah, yeah, you're like harassing someone to... Pressuring someone to get an abortion. Uh-huh. On Christmas Eve of all days. Yeah, yeah. It's it's pretty bad. So, yeah, he was like, yeah, I'll marry you, but like, you got to get an abortion. I, and I have to do it. <laughs> yeah, I'm the one doing it. And back then... Back then, like, you had to be specially trained for abortions. Like, not just like any doctor could do it. You have to be specially trained for that. And even those who were specifically trained for that... The death rate, like the rate of survival for someone who undergone, who underwent an abortion was very, very low. Oh, I can imagine. Yeah. A lot of, most people died actually. It was like most people died. So during this time, um, and that is what the research said. So the fact that she was, I mean, she must be scared. I mean, she must've known this. You were living in that time, you know? Yeah. Uh, So she was probably scared, but like the fact that he was trying to force that on her or did force it on her, definitely not okay. Um, but yeah, so she agreed and it was planned for Christmas Eve. Um, and Julia went missing. Um, and her daughter, Pearl, went missing as well. The body of her daughter, Pearl, was found years later in the basement of the hotel. Holmes articulated and cleaned uh, Connor's skeleton. So Holmes, yeah, articulated and cleaned Julia's body and sold it to a university for $200. Um, so a lot of people believe that a lot of people believe that Julia died during the abortion process. Like they believe that Holmes tried to perform the abortion on her and like it was unsuccessful, obviously, cause he wasn't trained in that. Mm-hmm. And so she died and he was like, well, oh, well she's dead. So might as well make money from it. So or maybe he, he never even tried the abortion. Yeah. Like he just that, straight up killed her. Right. And the other, the other camp believes that he just he just straight up killed her, you know? Yeah. Um, and he had no plans of ever trying to marry her or have an abortion. Either way, he killed her. So yeah. um, he's guilty of that. So, and okay, so the weird thing about that, though, is that, you know, just before Christmas of that year, Julia got a wedding invitation in the mail from her sister. Uh, and she was, like, super excited about it. And on Christmas Eve, actually, like, before she met up with H.H. H. Holmes, she spent, she spent time with the, uh, the Crow family who were, they were a family who was staying in the Holmes Hotel at the time. And John Crow would later recall that Julia talked excitedly about her sister's wedding. Uh, he said that, she said that she would only be gone for a week or two and that she wasn't planning to leave until after Christmas. Uh, Mrs. Crow said that Julia spoke about her plans for Christmas, uh, for Christmas Day and never mentioned anything that would cause them to believe she planned on going away that night. She even left like dinner dishes on the table, according to what they were saying. Wow. So she had, she was hanging out with his family. Um, and according to what she told them, she was going to leave after Christmas. You know what I mean? Yeah. Uh, and it was only going to be on for a couple weeks. Yet after she left the crow's apartment, no one ever saw Julia or her daughter Pearl again. Um, so what exactly happened to them is unknown. Like I said, they did find Pearl's body. We do know that Holmes killed her. We can... We surmise that he killed Julia as well, but the method in which he did that, we don't know. Um, he's he's also like Holmes himself has also bounced like jumped around with the story regarding it. He claimed that he never killed her. He claimed that she moved away and never came back. 
And then he claimed that she accidentally died during the abortion. So he's claimed a lot of different things. So you can't really believe him. I mean, he's like a, a really good liar anyway. Mm-hmm. But yeah, so that, that's, um, that's how his mistress died of that. But in May of 1893, uh, the, World, the World Fair came to Chicago. Um, and three years later, over 20 million tourists flocked to the area. Holmes used this opportunity to capitalize on his demented design of his castle the perfect lodging for unsuspecting tourists. He redesigned the third floor to make it more attractive to, to elderly women who exploited and uh, to exploit their wealth. Um, and they were perfect victims because they were unknown. P- people who were traveling to the Chicago fair to attend the Chicago fair, they were perfect victims for him because they were unknown in the city and relatives, their relatives only knew that they went to the fair. They yeah. didn't know anything else. So some left the castle unharmed who stayed there and many, but many like never were heard from again. It's interesting that not everyone that stayed there died, you know, mm-hmm. and they killed some people. I guess because logistically you couldn't kill every single person that stays in your hotel, you know. But. Exactly. It's a logistics thing because like you have to keep up appearances. If mm-hmm. every single person who went to your hotel died... Be really bad Yelp reviews. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, 100% really. 100% of the bad. guests have died here. It's not too, not too promising. <laughs> exactly. Really bad Yelp reviews. Like, <laughs> you'd be police at your door, like, immediately. So I think Holmes was smart enough to realize that. So he, he didn't kill everybody, but many of them did go, di- uh, did go like, they disappeared and they, they were missing. Mm-hmm. Um, and if you, if you think about it, it is perfect because the World Fair was, like, this huge event. People were going to look at, uh, you know, look at these, like, the exposition, they're looking to get jobs. Um, and a lot of these people were from different states. And so they were just lodging wherever they could, hotels, motels, you know, mm-hmm. wherever hostels. They, hostels, wherever they could find, they would go. And homes, this is perfect for him because it's like, these people are from a different state. They don't have family here. They don't have friends here. The only, the only thing that like their relatives know is that they went on a trip to the World Fair and they never came back. Yeah. They don't know how, they don't know where they stayed. It's not like they had a cell phone and could text yeah. someone, oh, I'm staying at uh, the murder hotel. You know what I mean? <laughs> the murder castle. The murder castle with H.H. Holmes. Yeah, so it was, it was honestly brilliant. It was like perfect. Do you think perfect. that's why he moved to Chicago, like deep down? Because like that thing's scheduled years in advance, you know? Like yeah, They knew for is. a long time the World Fair was going there. Mm-hmm. So it's kind of interesting, interesting thought. That is. Um, I mean, yeah, I would say it probably, probably – is the reason why he did move there because I think he moved there for for that but then also like the financial gains because it was like a booming city with a lot of people and a lot of like because there's records of him being and and we're going to touch on this later but there's like so much written records of him like there's a lot of a lot of like and it's all legal like there's a bunch of lawsuits against him there's him going to school here attending school here um taking out this loan, taking out that loan. So the reason why we're able to track where he was and where he lived and where he like traveled to is because there's just so much legal documentation, whether it's loans, whether it's lawsuits, whether it's attending schools, like we're able to look at history and definitely track and know uh, more or less where he was and what he was doing, which is cool. Cause I think you can't do that with everybody, especially in that time. Yeah. Uh, but luckily he was so busy at work that we were able to track his whereabouts. But yeah, I think he moved to Chicago because of the booming, you know, the booming economy, he wanted to make money. Again, for him, it was all about money and like he would, he didn't really care about killing people. That was just a, a means to an end almost. Exactly. You know, just whatever, just cattle, you know, just trying to make money. So yeah. Um, 
So yeah, so many victims, many travelers of the World Fair stayed at his hotel. Uh, some left unharmed, had like a normal stay, but many were never heard from again. And you know, the weird thing is like, I'm sure some people think like, well, like how did he not get caught? Like a lot of people went missing, right? But mm -hmm. it's like the way he was, like he, he had it, his process of killing people was so refined. Very efficient. Point, very efficient and refined. <laughs> like at this point, the way he would kill a lot of them in the hotel, he would asphy asphyxiate them. Like he would gas, like the rooms were gas chambers. So he would just put that poison gas, mm -hmm. kill them, you know, take the body, drop it down the chute. It would go directly to the basement. No one would ever see it. No one would hear their struggles, you know? And a lot no, of people probably didn't even know that, like who was staying there, you know? like Exactly. You know? So it was, per it was very refined. He was super smart. Like it was the perfect way to kill people. Um, it sounds weird saying that, but it was. And uh, hidden in Holmes' office was a control panel for gas chambers that ran inside the walls to the bedrooms, which again, you know, the bedrooms were like gas chambers. So when the women fell asleep, Holmes snuck into the office and turned on the gas. Uh, the, asbest the asbestos lining, yeah, the asbestos lining on the walls silenced the blood curling screams as they asphyxiated. So if they did wake up and scream, um, the walls were lined with asbestos, which like it um, kind of it makes it like really hard to hear. Absorbs the sound. Yeah, pretty much. So and gives you mesothelioma. What's that? It's the the lung cancer thing. I'm pretty sure. Oh, does it really give you that? You never seen the commercials? <laughs> like, if <laughs> no. you if you or a loved one worked in the refinery in these years, call this lawyer. Hmm. You may be entitled to financial compensation. I've never heard that. That's crazy. Mm -hmm. um, so if you if you're listening and have been exposed to asbestos. You know, <laughs> asbestos. Keep that in mind. <laughs> yeah. Um, so, so you had a whole control panel for just for the gas chambers and everything. Yeah, directly directly in his office. So he, like I said, he knew what he was doing. He had it all worked out. Females from his staff were some of Holmes' favorite victims. Uh, many of whom were required to take out life insurance policies just to get the job. Wow. Um, with Holmes listed as the beneficiary. If that's not sketchy, I don't I know. know. I don't know what is. Um, he paid the premiums, and he, he said, like, I'll pay the premiums as a part of their employment. So he's like, in order to work here, you have to get a life insurance policy. I have to be the beneficiary. But don't worry, I'll pay the premium. Like, that's just so sketchy. I like, I don't understand how. I would ask a lot of questions. Yeah, I don't like, understand. Why do I have to do that again? He's like, oh, don't worry about it. It's just, you know, technicality type thing. <laughs> I don't know why these women didn't, you know. I don't know why they went along with it. I would have been like... They might have been like uneducated, you know, the employees. Could have been, yeah. So they probably didn't even know what they were really doing, like what that even meant, you know, like what beneficiary meant, yeah. what insurance really was, you know, that kind of thing, so... And a lot of them were younger girls, so they could have been like in school still or maybe never attended school. Um, like a lot of them were like hired to be typists or like secretaries or cashiers. Mm -hmm. So it's not like the jobs that he was hiring for, it's not like he was hiring like pharmacists or doctors. He was yeah. just hiring like... You know, like clerical easy, people. Yeah, administrative work type of thing. So, yeah, maybe he was just. Yeah, maybe that's why. But also on top of that, he was just very charismatic, charming, I guess handsome to them, uh, and he knew how to lie and con people. Yeah. Um, and yeah, so women found that appealing. They found that he had. They saw his wealth and like. Oh, he's a business owner. You know, he has yeah. his own hotel. Has a pharmacy, a hotel. He dresses nice. He's mm -hmm. he's you know, well-groomed. Like, he can be a beneficiary, you know? <laughs> exactly. Yeah, and, like, a lot of times he would make, like, he would flirt with his employees and, like, make romantic advances at them so that he could kind of, like, gain favor with them type of thing so that he could yeah. easily persuade them to do things he wanted. 
Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, very sinister stuff. At the height of the fair, his multitasking skills reached a whole new level as he scammed creditors, ran a thriving business, and slaughtered people at night. All while no one, all the while no one, even that other house guest, ever suspected him doing anything wrong. Not only that, but he has quite—you know—he was quite the ladies' man. At one point, he had three wives, um, and each one believed they were his one and only. Um, and one of his many mistresses, Emmeline. Sigrand, yeah, Emmeline Sigrand entered the scene. She she is also she also worked as his personal secretary, uh, and Holmes used her in in every way possible. He used her for money, um, obviously romantic things. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> I was used her in every way possible. Yeah. You know what I mean? <laughs> That's how, I didn't mean it like that. Okay. That's how you said it. Like, yeah, I know. Yeah, he used her in every way. He sure did. <laughs> I didn't mean it like that, but you know, <laughs> I realized that right after I said it, it came off like that. But he, yeah, he used her like for money mostly. But obviously, I'm sure he was romantic with her because they were seen out canoodling. Canoodling. <laughs> yeah. Canoodling at the fair. <laughs> <laughs> What a scandal. <laughs> Canoodling at the fair. That sounds funny. Emmeline. <laughs> yeah, so, like, the reason I say that is because that they were seen out is because, yeah, so, like, her, Emmeline would come home late, and her landlord would apparently tell her, like, would apparently see them together and be like, Emmeline, it's not proper for you to be seen with the married man. And so, like, people saw her out, and, like, a lot of people, some people who knew H.H. H. Holmes, they knew he was married, and mm-hmm. so that landlady was trying to like warn her like don't like get involved with a married man that's not right it's not ladylike and when Holmes she told Holmes and when Holmes found out about this he moved Emmeline out of there and into a different apartment and gave her fake names for himself like he's like if anyone asks you who I am or whatever tell them this name and tell them that name yeah. and, and she knew they were fake names obviously but she still went along with it like she was just so like entranced by him you know like hypnotized yeah. um and Holmes, meanwhile, covered his tracks at home with his wife, Myrta, at the time, which is his second wife, if you're counting. Uh, he, he, he covered his tracks there by moving his family outside of town, sending his wife and child to a nice house in the suburbs. Um, so while they lived there full times, Holmes only came around once or twice a week. And Emmeline didn't seem to mind Holmes' lies at all because... She knowingly told several people Holmes' fake name and knew Holmes was married. She actually knew Holmes was married, though. Um, um, she was a mistress. She wasn't married to him, but she knew he was married. But he, she believed that he was, like, planning a divorce, Merita. Of course. Uh, right? Don't they all? And then for Emmeline, like, the relationship was true love. Like, she was definitely in love with him, smitten by him. But for Holmes, the relationship was just another scam. You know, he lied to have complete control over her and to use her for whatever he wanted. So, yeah, like, that's... Yeah, as you can tell, he's he's a ladies' man, but um, he doesn't really have any feelings. He just uses and abuses. That's what he does. That's how it goes. After after um, Emmeline was no longer useful, or maybe just for fun, who really knows, Holmes asked her to retrieve documents from his vault, his steel vault. Uh-oh. Uh, yeah, you know where this is going. Once she entered the vault, he, he locked her inside. Um, police later found her shoe impression on the door, where she tried to kick her way free before suffocating to death. Um, one week later, Holmes sold the female skeleton to the university. So, yeah, he locked her in the seal vault. She suffocated to death. 
Um, and then he dissected her body, skinned it, and had it articulated, and he sold it to a university. So, and that was someone he was like romantically involved with. So it just shows like this guy has no bounds, yeah, no boundaries. He just no limits. Uh-huh. I wonder like why he should decide to kill her after a while. You know, like I guess did she find too much out about him, or was he just bored of her? I think it, I think he legit was just bored of like judging by like what I know of him. Yeah, he just he struck me as a guy who like. Who, you know who's like my new play thingy for now you know like who's my yeah. new toy for like a week or a, year, or a couple months then I'm gonna like dispose of them and just f- on to the next you know what I mean mm-hmm. um, that's the way I see it because she knew a lot about him and she didn't care obviously she didn't care about the fake name she didn't care he was married she was in love with him he probably knew that you know he knew he had a, a hold on her but he just he didn't care he was just like I'm bored yeah. so this enters now enters another female by the name of Georgiana Yoke uh she thought she married someone by the name of Henry Mansfield Howard. That's one of Holmes' aliases. Um, and like Holmes' other two wives, Georgiana lived a long, healthy life. So she didn't actually die. But apparently he never harmed He never harmed any of them. So he, he didn't harm her or Marta, the second wife. So the second and third wife of Holmes, he never actually harmed any of those just the first one. The first he one he abused. Probably and then she abused. Yeah. yeah. And the second and third one, he never harmed him. But at the same time, it's probably because he was getting his fix, like, killing all these people, you know? Yeah. He wasn't yet a serial killer when he was with his first wife, you know? He was I mean? taking out on her. Probably, know? yeah. I mean, that's what I can conclude, at least. Um, in Boston, H.H. H. Holmes meets a railroad heiress by the name of Minnie Williams. Um, she's an heiress that answered Holmes' ad for a typist. Um, and... Or a stenographer is what it's popularly known as. Um, her name was Millie Williams, and she was an actress and elocution teacher. Not sure what that means. And she had $50,000 worth of land in Fort Worth, Texas. So she was definitely well off. Um, when he learns of her inheritance, he begins to woo her and flirt with her, and he succeeds in kind of gaining her affection. Um so by the time his other mistress, Emmeline Singrind, is gone, Minnie announces that she's moving to Chicago, because of likely because of Holmes and because of her affection for him. Um, so Minnie has now become the official stenographer for H.H. H. Holmes, which is a position that's held by many of Holmes' lady friends who never made it out of the castle alive, unfortunately. Um, Minnie was different because, like I said, she... She was wealthy. She had, um, she was the heiress of a lot of land in Fort Worth, Texas. Um, some even say that she acted as an accomplice to Holmes, but that can never be confirmed. That's just a theory. So there, there's not really no any, there's not really grounds to that. Um, but a few months into her stay at the castle, Minnie invited her younger sister Anna to join her. Anna left Texas at the end of June, 1893, and on July 4th, she wrote home telling her aunt. Um, Sister, brother Harry, meaning Holmes, and myself will leave in a few days for Europe, where I might remain to study art. Brother Harry says you need never trouble any more about me, financially or otherwise. He and sister will see to me. What? Yeah, so Anna pretty much wrote to her aunt saying that, like, brother Harry, I guess like a brother-in-law. Brother Harry, Henry Holmes, um, you know, he said, don't worry about me. He's going to take care of me financially and otherwise. Him and my sister, they're going to, you know, they, they got me covered type of thing. Wow. He's going to take them both in, huh? Yeah. Well, so she thinks, right? Um, so around this time, 
H.H. Holmes pops the question uh, to Minnie. And Minnie, Minnie's sister, Anna, she urges him to slow down because she's like, everything's moving way too fast. You just met this guy. You're, you're already moving to Chicago with him. Um, he's asking you to marry him. Um, it's all moving fast. And the reason it's moving fast is because Holmes has an agenda. Um, he persuades Minnie to transfer the deed of her of her dead uncle's Texas property to a man by the name of Alexander Bond, which is an alias for Holmes himself. So Alexander Bond is actually him. Um, and, she, and he convinces Minnie to transfer the deed over to that guy. Um, There's a guy in our high school class named Alexander Bond. Really? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> wow, that's crazy. Great descendant of that guy, I'm sure. <laughs> a, fake, a fake man. Mm-hmm. Minnie also doesn't know that Holmes is legally married to two other women. Shocker, right? Um, Holmes and Minnie wed secretly, but there's no record of their marriage in the registry of Cook County, Illinois, um, which is obvious because it's not legal. But the fact that uh, going back to the whole thing is like, I don't know how he could convince her to sign over the deed of, the, of that expensive land to a guy named Alexander Bond. She's probably like, who the heck is Alexander Bond? You know what I mean? Like... The fact it's, that he can convince her to do that means he's very... I guess it's, like, a complex subject, like, land ownership and, like, rights and stuff like that. And, like, these women, pro- these women probably didn't know much about the topic, you know, because they might have not been educated and stuff like that. Mm-hmm. So that's why it was more easy for him to manipulate them into doing that kind of thing, you know? Like, he was probably able to convince them somehow it was a good idea, that kind of thing, or that would benefit that, them in some way. Yeah. Even though uh, it's pretty obvious that never, never... Came to fruition, to use a big word. Yeah, that's a good point. Um, So at this point in time, Holmes and Minnie are already married. Again, things moved really fast, but it's because Holmes knew what he was doing. And again, very goal-oriented. He knows what he wants, and he goes after it. So he's married to Minnie. He invites Anna to come spend the summer in Chicago with them, which she obliges. Um, They're going to spend some time at the World Fair. So Holmes wants complete control of Minnie's inheritance, right? Um, he already got her to sign over the deed to, uh, to that Alexander Bond guy, which is an alias. But he knows that Anna has a claim to the family land, so he needs to get rid of her. Um, on July 4th, 1893, Holmes picked up Anna from the Inglewood train station and then took her to the castle, telling her, or the hotel, telling her that her sister was there waiting for her. Um, but she actually wasn't. He trapped Anna inside the eight-foot steel vault and locked her inside. He then filled the vault with gas and killed her. He then takes Minnie Williams on a train ride, and he kills her by poisoning her drink, and then he later buries her body. So she got, like, the le- like the less graphic death, I guess. Yeah, pretty much out of, out of everyone that he's killed, it, d- it would seem that Minnie got the least graphic death, just poisoned. Um, I mean, I don't know. People getting gassed. Like that, in their sleep? In their sleep. That's not really... I don't know if it's that painful. I mean... I think, like, if you're asleep, you just kind of, you know, you suffocate pretty much in your sleep. Like, so. would you wake up? Because, like, like if you're, if you're suffocating, you'd wake up from that if you're sleeping. Like, you need. I know, but I think something, like, the noxious fumes would, like, kind of knock you out or whatever, you know? Yeah, that's possible. That's how people commit suicide, by putting their car in the garage, you know, and making it run with the garage door closed. Yeah. Is the carbon monoxide or whatever? Okay, carbon monoxide, right. Yeah, that's a good so, point. So, yeah. Well, she definitely yeah. got an easier death, but she still died, which sucks. She just got poisoned. She yeah. won the, the Holmes lottery, really, if you think about it, of ways to get murdered. <laughs> she just got the poison. 
Yeah, she got the easiest one. Um, Holmes would later write that his wife, Minnie Williams, who he says suffered from mental illness, had killed her own sister over jealousy over Holmes. He details how he disposed of her, of his sister-in-law's body and then ended things with Minnie. But we obviously know this was not the case. But that's pretty, <laughs> that's pretty crazy that like he's like, yeah, you know, like um, Minnie's sister... Annie was all over me, and Minnie didn't <laughs> like that. She got jealous of it, and so she killed Annie. I just covered up, covered it up type of thing, you know? Yeah. I just covered it up for her, which is, like, clearly a lie. It's just messed up. Like, if someone's dead, they can't defend themselves, and you're just, like, dragging their name through the mud. It's pretty much what he's doing. So, during the spring and summer of 1893, while Minnie was still alive at the time... At least two other young women vanished after visiting the castle. Supposedly, they were Holmes' mistresses, too. Um, police believe there are many more whose remains uh, were never recovered. All the girls were beautiful. Many held the position of stenographer or typist. Another of Holmes' creative outlets was photography. In his words, he liked to get a nice, green, young girl fresh from a business college. That was his own words. Very, that's very creepy. <laughs> Sorority girl. Sorority girl. Yeah, it sounds like it. Zeta, Kappa um, Alpha or something. Not just fraternity. Fraternity, yeah. More than once he showed photographers... Oh, I'm sorry. More than once he showed photographs to house guests while the model decomposed in the basement. Jeez. Yeah, so he's a crazy guy. It's pretty dark. It's estimated that he hired more than 150 women as notaries to legitimize his fraudulent documents or as typewriters. Um... He told them that this was a badge of merit, when in reality, he was sealing their fate. Uh, to all his victims, including the young women, he represented himself as wealthy, when in truth, they were usually the wealthy ones, and he was just feeding off of their wealth. So, enter... Okay, so now we, we got to bring in this guy named Benjamin Peitzel. He is like Holmes' right-hand man. He becomes Holmes' right-hand man. He's like kind of the opposite of Holmes a little bit. Like, Holmes is five foot seven. he's 150 pounds... Um, he's like sophisticated, elegant, intelligent, and Benjamin Peitzel is like six foot two. He's like tall. He's burly, you know, husky. Like me, pretty much. <laughs> oh my God. Nothing like you. <laughs> um, but he was also an alcoholic, uh, but he became un- uh, employed by Holmes and he quickly became his right hand man. Peitzel was a carpenter, um, and he had a wife and five children that he had to provide for. So... Like, pretty much, Holmes, uh, Peitzel would do any kind of jobs he could find to just provide for his family. He had a big family. You know, five kids and a wife. He was an alcoholic, so, you know, he was spending money on alcohol. So, Holmes saw that, and, you know, he used that to his advantage. He used Peitzel in a number of different schemes. Um, Holmes writes in his autobiography that he became close to Peitzel and his family, and particularly took a liking to Peitzel's kids, calling them bright. So, he thought they were intelligent and, you know... Um, yeah, so that is very interesting. About That's how he him. met Peitzel. Yeah, he just became employed by him. It never really quite says how he met him, per se. It just says that, you know, he comes into the picture. He's a carpenter, so maybe he hired him to do some carpentry or something. Yeah. And um, he just never left. He started doing work for him. We do a lot of schemes with him. Um, so Peitzel... Peitzel's drinking, though, because he was an alcoholic, it worsened and it got worse. And at night, guests could hear Holmes and Peitzel arguing over finances. And Holmes feared 
that he'd ramble in a drunken stupor and tell others about the inner design of the castle and his after-hour activities. Um, in other words, Peitzel had outgrown his usefulness yeah. to H.H. Holmes. He's a loose cannon. Yeah, he'd become that. He'd become a liability. And Agent Holmes never really has any true friends. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. Um, so he persuaded Peitzel to buy a life insurance policy worth $10,000, naming his wife Carrie as the beneficiary. The plan was to stage his death in Pennsylvania, uh, substituting a stolen cadaver for um, a corpse, just a random corpse that they stole or had, while the family went underground. They'd, they'd then split the insurance money 50-50, um, and, you know, it was like a get-rich-quick kind of scheme. Um, never thinking that his good friend would do him harm, he agreed. His wife, Carrie, however, did, you know, she took longer to convince. She was not happy about it. She did not want him to do it. Uh, but before they set their plan into motion, Holmes and the family of seven left Chicago to commit fraud across the country using numerous fake IDs. Um, so several weeks later, Holmes and Peitzel headed to uh, Pennsylvania, the location where they'd carry out the insurance scam. As Peitzel hugged his wife goodbye, you know, she begged him to reconsider, but it was already too late to turn back. Um, and they needed the money. So Holmes got Peitzel drunk, which wasn't hard because he was an alcoholic. Um, he knocked him unconscious with chloroform, then bound Peitzel's arms and legs, doused his face and body in benzene, which is highly flammable, and lit his body on fire to make his death look like an accident. And I'm, gonna, I'm about to read right now a direct... How does that make it look like an accident? <laughs> oh, this guy, he tied himself up, his arms behind his back and he put a cloth in his mouth poured benzene on himself and then lit himself on fire which just an absolute tragedy you know, this happened <laughs> right like I don't know how did he do that to himself that's a very good point I think like I'm pretty sure he removed the ropes after oh, his good body point. was burned you know? I didn't even think about that yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah like that's like the logical thing to do and he was really smart but I, I, I like I get what you're saying like mm-hmm. that's a good question you know but yeah the reason why he burned it is so that the body would be unrecognizable um so it'll come into play i'll touch on it but so i'm about to read right now an excerpt from his autobiography which is um in case you're wondering the autobiography of h.h holmes is called his words um it's the story of h.h holmes and his confessions um and we'll i'll touch on that later as well but yeah so that's a really good book a very good read a lot of interesting stuff take it with a grain of salt though because like he was a prolific liar and you couldn't really you couldn't really take everything he said as truth because a lot of the people he claimed to have killed a lot of some people and then they later went and found that those people were alive and well you know mm-hmm. so he claimed to kill people that he never actually killed I think but, all serial killers want to like exaggerate their body count you know right the Zodiac killer was claimed to have done that a lot of people yeah you're right about that I think most serial killers or a lot of serial killers exaggerate their body count I do the same thing in a different way, but... <laughs> oh, my <laughs> God. Yeah, that you do do the same thing in a different way. It's quite sad. <laughs> um, okay, so I'm about to read the excerpt, and this will be... I'll end uh, this first part with this quote. Um, but, yeah, this is what H.H. H. Holmes had to say about killing uh, Benjamin Peitzel. It was necessary for me to kill him in such a manner that no struggle or movement of his body should occur. I overcame this difficulty by first binding him hand and foot and proceeded to burn him alive by saturating his clothes and his face with benzene and igniting it with a match. 
So horrible was this torture that in writing of it, I have been tempted to attribute his death to some other human means. Not with the wish to spare myself, but because it will not be believed that one could be so heartless and depraved. The least I can do is spare my reader a recital of the victim's cries for mercy, his prayers, and finally his plea for a more speedy termination of his sufferings, all of which upon me had no effect. Whew, geez, this guy, he's, uh... He's pretty metal. Yeah, yeah, definitely metal, but... Yeah, I mean, this guy, like, if you think about it, it's really messed up because, I mean, this guy was supposedly his friend, you know, his right-hand man. They did a lot of schemes together, but not only that, he actually sat and ate with him and his family, you know? Yeah. He had dinner with his family. He got close to his family and his kids, and he took a liking to his kids, you know what I mean? Like, it's just crazy that, like, people can get so close to someone like that and then spend all the time with his family and knowing that he has kids and stuff like that and still still murder him in the way that he did too he burned him alive so I, I'm thinking I'm thinking when he knocked him out you know he got him drunk obviously but I think when he knocked him out he must have woken up or something yeah um, maybe also like in the same way that serial killers kind of some of them can exaggerate their body count maybe he's like exaggerating right the manner of death here got it yeah like, no that's true like for sure it burned, burned him up, you know, but exactly. did he ever really wake up, you know? Right, that right. That's true. That's a good point. I didn't think about that because, like, you know, he does lie a lot. Obviously, some tough, some stuff he told the truth about, but... Still, it's, pretty, it's really messed up to burn your friend, like, whether they're... Burn your friend alive. Whether awake or not. I mean, And then your pretty... friend has kids and a wife, you know, and, like, you've had dinner with them. I don't know. They're just, like, it's so... It's so impossible for me to comprehend, like, how you could do that. Mm-hmm. Like, steep, that, that low of, you know what I mean? Like, how can you be that kind of human being? You're not even human at that point. Yeah. But, yeah, it's crazy that he was able to do that. And, like, at the end of it, he's just like, it had no effect on me. I didn't. Yeah, no, like, for people like that, it doesn't really bother them that much. Like, it doesn't, doesn't even phase them at all. Yeah. So, like, he's just completely numb at this point to killing anyone and everyone, even if it's his quote-unquote friends or henchmen, you know, people that he had spend time with um so that concludes part one of hh holmes america's first serial killer in part two we will be finishing up hh holmes crimes and murders we'll be talking about his trial and death and we will also touch on a possible connection between hh holmes and jack the ripper so you definitely don't want to miss it thank you guys so much for tuning in to the devil's hour a podcast for the strange and unusual i'm your host darius i'm carl and um Thank you guys for joining. See you next time.